Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Today's podcast is titled Progress in Cosmology 2000. Professor Bernard Salyaday, Director of the Center for Particle Astrophysics at the University of California, Berkeley, and Professor of Astronomy and Physics Mark Davis discuss the progress that has been made in cosmology at the turn of the century. Listen now and don't forget to subscribe to get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Mark, how is your uh, undergraduate class uh going these days? I mean, you just finished, but... Uh, well, we just finished, and it, uh, it's always a lot of fun to teach the undergraduates astronomy and uh, introductory physics classes at, at Cal. Uh, in particular, I always enjoy the aspects of the course where we focus on cosmology, because to the students, uh, there are so many concepts that are so fundamental. And uh, since it's the research that you and I like to do, uh, I, I'm most enthusiastic when we're talking about cosmological studies. Uh, students have, you know, come into the course with no background, and when I begin to talk about general relativity, curved spaces, black holes, expanding universes, uh, they're, uh, they're extremely interested, and questions pick up. Yes, these questions of the Big Bang uh, are always interested interesting to the students uh, and we are we should say that we are living in a golden time of cosmology uh, it, it appears to be I am uh, so impressed by the progress that has been made in our discipline ever since uh, you and I were students uh, when I was a young student uh, what we knew about uh, modern cosmology was amazingly primitive compared to what we what is known now so now we have about three uh, proofs of the Big Bang. We have the expansion of the, the universe from the uh, recession velocity of the galaxies that we can measure. Right, and that's quite old. That's quite old, but now it's very precise. Uh, the, we have the cosmic microwave background, this uh, Rayleigh radiation from the early universe, and uh, we should speak a little bit about that sure. because that's uh, really impressive progress recently. And then we have the abundances of the light nuclei. Uh, Such as deuterium. Deuterium and uh, helium-4 and uh, lithium-7. And, uh, and that's also a very impressive piece of work. So, so it is astounding. When I, was a, when I began graduate school in the late 60s, the, uh, the Big Bang uh, confirmation had already begun, particularly because the, the discovery of the microwave background radiation, this cosmic fireball that pervades all of space, had only occurred about four years previously. And uh, I was at Princeton in the midst of the excitement, uh, and not that many people had quite grasped the, how far this revolution would proceed. But it was already clear by that point that the hot Big Bang model appeared to, to work, and the old steady-state model that we had studied earlier was out, was out the, window. the window. So this was the late 60s. And then the next progress was about eight years ago with the COBE satellite, uh, which uh, really began to see fluctuations in this microwave background. It was, uh, it was a long, steady, uh, set of experiments that required was required over so many years for uh, for that to happen. I, I do remember 
In my graduate school days, I was working with Dave Wilkinson in the uh, gravity group at, mm -hmm. under uh, Bob Dickey, Dave Wilkinson, Jim Peebles group at Princeton. And the group got the reputation as being the group that measured zero to ever better precision. Year after year, Wilkinson and his students were attempting to measure ripples in this microwave uh, radiation, this primeval fireball that they had uh, played a major role in the discovery. And for so many years, they never could see anything. Because what they were, we, we know now that what they, uh, the ripples are only at the level of one part in 10 to the fifth. Right, one part in 100,000 is so very faint. Very faint. The first experiments had sensitivities that would perhaps have detected something at uh, a 1% level. They did, they, they did measure the, the movement of our uh, galaxy inside the, uh, with respect to the frame of the microwave background. And I remember when that was done, that was a big uh, competitive project between a group at Princeton and another group at, at Berkeley. Mm. And uh, nobody had an experiment that could do the whole project. Some groups looked, uh, they, they, whenever they did a flight to do this experiment, they would measure a fraction of the sky. Mm. And over the course of several different episodes, they measured most of the sky and eventually came up with some argument that yes, indeed, it appears as though on one side of the sky is hotter, the other side is colder. And then finally, there was the beautiful U2 experiments done here at, at uh, at Cal that were more convincing. And but this was flight. late, late uh, 70s. I think somewhere in the 70s. Yes, late 70s. And uh, then it was uh, looking convincing as though we could see a, a fluctuation. One side of the sky was about a one thousandth or one part in a thousand hotter than the other side of the sky. Yeah. And, and of course, we interpret that as due to our motion, the motion of our galaxy relative to this uniform preferred background frame that describes the uh, expanding Big Bang. Yeah. This is not easy to explain to the students because uh, they, you know, we always ask them the question, uh, how do you measure motion? Rel it, relative motion is what we learn in Einstein's theory uh, is what you can measure. Absolute motion is not important and yet in cosmology, there is an absolute frame, and that is the frame in which this, this background radiation is smooth. It is, it is what we call isotropic, of course, the same in all directions. But that's a challenge for the students. And uh, one of the assignments that's fun is to add up the components of this velocity, which we know is really quite substantial. It's 600 kilometers a second, uh, the net motion of our galaxy and its neighbors moving relative to the expansion of the universe. Yeah. So that was the late 70s. Then uh, in 92, I remember very well when we had uh, this first discovery of the fluctuations of the microwave background now at the 10 degree level. Right. Uh, Do you remember that? Uh, I, I have a very distinct recollection of that day when the announcement was made because the team uh, had been working the COBE team. This was a very fancy satellite that NASA had flown and that a team of dedicated scientists had spent 20 years in developing yeah, yeah. for, including participants from Berkeley and from Princeton and from around the other major centers. And this team had really guarded their results carefully. Yeah, uh, I was at, the, uh, at their announcement in uh -huh. 
I had no rec I had no idea that the announcement would be so extensive when they when they first yeah. talked about it. I only anticipated when I because I wasn't in a, on the inside team, I thought that they might simply discover the next order term in the ripples, what we would call a quadrupole term. Uh, but in fact, and that, that would be something with 90 degree scale. Yeah. But when they had ripples announced all the way down to the 10 degree scale, uh, I was sort of blown away. We were absolutely uh, flabbergasted by the, uh, by the announcement, I remember. And, uh, um, and this was the first indication that we were seeing small ripple in densities at the right times. Right. For, and this, again, was the, the culmination of 20 years of effort. People had tried experiment after experiment to measure these ripples, and nobody quite had the sensitivity. And finally, the satellite, designed specifically to do this project, had adequate sensitivity to, uh, to really do the investigation properly. They took uh, data that uh, required four years, in the end, of collecting data, a satellite above the Earth's atmosphere, very carefully designed to remove uh, backgrounds and look for amazingly faint signals. Now, not a part in a thousand relative to this radiation, mm -hmm. but a part in a hundred thousand. Well, it was quite uh, remarkable. And, and I think this had two consequences. One is that we, we could infer at that time uh, uh, the amount of uh, density fluctuations, a small ripple in density in the early universe at the time this uh, radiation uh, was emitted, which is about 300,000 light, uh, sorry, 300,000 years after the Big Bang. Right. And actu actually, I was quite surprised by one of your uh, work at that time where you put that on the same plot with the large scale structure uh, densities that we see today and see that these two things were connecting very well. It was very exciting to see that uh, what the work that I and others had been doing to study the distribution of galaxies in space showed a pattern of structure uh, with statistical properties consistent with what we were seeing on these uh, ripples in, on larger scale seen in the satellite uh, microwave experiments. So we really had the impression at that time, and I think they still uh, true that uh, uh, we believe it is still true that uh, we were observing the seed, the seeds of galaxy formation, a small ripple in the densities right. uh, of matter which will attract matter around them and grow with time and form finally galaxies and uh, clusters of galaxies and so on. And I also remember the excitement that started again in the late 70s, all motivated by this progress in the Big Bang, that uh, the Big Bang models only really made sense in uh, simple universes that had abundant matter in them, sufficient matter to uh, perhaps, as we described, make the universe closed or nearly closed. And, uh, and for many years, astronomers, as we know well, astronomers had attempted to find a census of all the matter in the universe, counting up the stars, estimating the mass per star, adding it up, and had only arrived at a density that would be uh, perhaps 1% of the required amount to eventually stop the expansion of the universe and make it recollapse by its mm -hmm. own self-gravity. 
you know, of course, this is the analogy I tell to my classes all the time. We throw a ball up in the air, and if you can throw the ball fast enough, it will escape the gravity of the Earth mm -hmm. and fly off into infinity. But of course, the Earth has a massive pull and slows it down. The same is, of course, true with the universe. The universe is measured to be expanding. We can measure the rate at which it's expanding. Mm -hmm. And the question is, does the Earth contain enough mass to give a strong enough gravity to stop that expansion eventually and cause the material to either recollapse or to basically stop expanding. And uh, the students get very confused at this point when we try to describe, well, in one case the universe is open, the other case it's closed. This goes along with geometries uh, of, uh, that are analogous in a closed case to living on the surface of a sphere, or in the open case to living on, on a saddle. Yeah, one of the analogy, by the way, that uh, uh, seems to go through, uh, uh, to, uh, or seems to be understood by our, my students, is when I speak about the sum of the angles of a triangle. Right. Uh, and they know that in ordinary flat space, it's 180 degrees. In, they know that uh, if, uh, um, if they uh, measure that on a sphere, it can be more than 180 degrees. Right. And they can understand uh, that uh, in uh, the opposite curvature, which is difficult to visualize, it could be less than 180 degrees. And one of the things which is actually happening just now as we speak, there were two results uh, announced, uh, one this morning and the other one about two weeks ago, is that we are able to measure the size the angles of a triangle. The, uh, this microwave background that we have been speaking of is due to, uh, is the emission of this plasma uh, of uh, protons and electrons uh, uh, just at the time where it was recombining into the neutron hydrogen. And there are oscillations in this plasma. And we have been able to observe the oscillations in this plasma and, and uh, uh, look at it statistically, statistically, we are making maps of the sky, and we can uh, see the, uh, uh, these uh, vibrations. Now, the thing which is interesting is that we, can, we know the size of these vibrations the physical size. Right, because these are the last waves that had a time to oscillate just before the universe cooled down sufficiently for the matter to become neutral. That is so, to say, electrons and protons recombine to make neutral hydrogen. Yeah. yeah. So we know one of the size of the triangle, and now we can measure the angle mm -hmm. uh, uh, at the summit opposite to this side. Right. And basically, and this, try to see whether the triangle is such that the sum of the angles are 180 degrees or are smaller or bigger than 180 degrees. It's truly, it is an amazing, uh, amazingly simple concept uh, in general and uh, something that we can explain to the undergraduate mm -hmm. students who don't have a strong background in science. However, calculating in, in detail is something we won't ask them to do, of course. We won't have them to do. So the, the uh, and the, and the result, which is quite amazing, is that uh, really now, with very good accuracy, we can say that we are living in a flat universe. That is, the, um, that the sum of the angles of a triangle 
or the, the ratio between the angle and the side uh, of the triangle is exactly what you expect in a flat universe. That is truly a brilliant piece of work. And, and again, I have been in the last year as impressed, even more impressed than I was in 92 when the COBE results came out. Because as you recall, those first maps from the COBE satellite on large scale that saw the 10 degree ripples, they were pretty poor. Yeah, they were basically noise. the signal to noise was one. Statistically, you could say that something existed. Right. But now the signal to noise <coughs> is enormous. And, and, uh, and there have been tremendous progress in technology uh, uh, in this. And I think one of the things that uh, we can be proud of at Berkeley, quite frankly, and you should be especially proud of, is that uh, a lot of this research was fostered under the umbrella of the Center for Particle Astrophysics. and a National Science Foundation supported operation that ran for 11 years, now just recently completed. But this research made enormous strides under uh, your leadership and support because this the financial footing became much more secure and yeah. people could actually count on being able to hold a team together from year to year and make the progress needed to really break, have the breakthroughs that have come in the last, uh, this is the culmination of yeah. all of that effort. I'm convinced that uh, in many of the efforts that we are pursuing in science, we do not have the critical mass. And this delays progress. When we have the critical mass, as we did in the Center for Particle Astrophysics, we could focus uh, resources right. on the technology and on the team and bring the team together for 11 years, push the technology for 11 years, and you had marvelous results. It's true. It's true. Now, I want to uh, turn the conversation uh, to another side of the cosmological revolution, one that uh, is closer to your home. Uh, and uh, before we do that, uh, we should remind ourselves of where we got, how we got to this state, because uh, these Big Bang models, as, as we were discussing, really only make sense if there's a lot of matter in the universe sufficient to make it uh, approximately in a state of closure. Whereas the, the luminous matter that we can see in stars and galaxies is such a small fraction of that that it seems uh, astounding. It's only a few percent at total. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, these marvelous theoretical arguments about the abundance of uh, light elements in the universe, mm -hmm. such as uh, the helium and the deuterium in our universe, uh, which are consistent with observations, again suggest fairly convincingly. Maybe 5% of uh, what right. we call the critical density, the density which will st stop the expansion of the universe. This, this is, of course, the story of uh, the cooking of the, of the elements in the early universe, a time when the universe is less than three minutes old. How can we possibly calculate anything at that yeah, time? Beautiful book of Steven Weinberg, which is old, 72. But right. Still, still wonderful. Still wonderful. Uh, First three minutes, a book well worth reading. And, and in that book, he describes how, how we can reliably understand this the cooking. degrees of, uh, of how the cooking would occur and how the, one forms uh, deuterium and helium. And it's such a marvelous thing because the students understand deuterium. They know about heavy water. They've heard the concept. But when you explain to them that all the deuterium that, that exists in our oceans, in our reactors, and everywhere in the universe was all made in the Big Bang in the first three minutes, 
that is quite a quite an eye-opener because we know astronomers have pondered why deuterium exists because they realize that where the other elements are made, all the heavy elements like carbon, oxygen, iron, uranium, and everything, whereas they're made in the centers of stars, light elements like deuterium are not made Would there. be destroyed by stars. That's right. In fact, deuterium is burned by stars. And so uh, it, it cannot be created in stars. So there, the, 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 uh, really, the, um, uh, the progress uh, over the last five years are also has been fantastic with the 10-meter telescopes we have access to now, because we could measure directly deuterium in the line of sight of quasars. They are this, uh, what we call lime and alpha forest, uh, big clouds of gas which has barely been reprocessed by right. uh, in stars, and which, where we can measure the absorption lines of deuterium and uh, compare them with hydrogen. And, and uh, uh, this uh, give us now very good uh, limits on the total number of protons and neutrons in the universe. Do you remember uh, what the numbers are? I'm, I'm losing. Uh, it's about 5%. It's about 5%. So 5% with an error, a relative error of 20% on it. Okay. So it's amazingly. Uh, precise measurements for cosmology. Yes. So that is to say that only 5% of the, the critical crit mass, mass can be in the form of, of uh, ordinary material like yeah. us, like yeah. the atoms that make us up. But yet, of course, as you know, uh, we have fairly strong evidence that the total mass density, the total mass density in the universe is at least four, maybe six or eight times higher than that. Yes. So that's actually your own work about the uh, velocities of galaxies at large scales falling towards great, great attractors and, right. and the like, which right. seems to indicate that uh, the, the mass, the density in matter is at, is at least uh, 30 or 40 percent of this the critical density. Right. right. And of course, it, uh, what really pleased me in this work was that it provided a very clean and natural explanation of why we, our galaxy and our neighbors, are moving relative to the microwave background, as we described earlier, why we're moving at 600 kilometers a second. You are just falling towards... Uh, That's right. We're uh, falling uh, through uh, the uh, gravitational uh, attraction of what happens to be around us. It is a very convincing and satisfying explanation. But then we come, of course, to uh, the crux of the problem. If only 5% of the matter is in a form that we understand, What's the remainder of it? And of course, there we go back to uh, a laundry list of possibilities, yeah. which have been discussed for many years. This problem is with us, actually, since 1935, when Zwicky noticed that uh, a big cluster of galaxies, uh, the Coma Cluster, had no reason to stay together, unless right. uh, there was much more mass there than what you could see uh, uh, from just counting the number of galaxies and therefore of stars. Do you know, to show you the primitiveness with which people regarded Zwicky's suggestion, apparently, I, I reviewed, long ago I looked at a conference proceeding dating back from the late 50s, in which people were describing similar cases to the Zwicky's case, in which he argued for the existence of dark matter, and the astronomers in this conference were arguing, well, maybe these are chance superpositions, they come together for a short time, 
improbably, and then fly apart soon after. And there was a whole discussion that seemed to suggest that this was the explanation. This seems insane because there are many of these objects seen around the sky. How could they all be just coming together temporarily? Well, I have seen, uh, I've been working in this field for 15 years. I've seen a, a change uh, of the culture in astronomy departments over the last 15 years. When I was coming around, a former particle physicist speaking about the great problems of dark matter, people were very uh, skeptical right. in the mid-80s. They says, oh, yes, there is this problem, but it's probably measurement errors, or it's probably chance superpositions, or it's probably uh, non-spherical geometries. They had lots of excuses, and they were not uh, particularly unhappy that they had to invent in this, a different excuse for every system that they were observing. Right. For, a, not, phys yeah. for a physicist, that, that doesn't work at all. So uh, in the, about 10 years later, the, the, the change was total in terms of the acceptance of the dark matter problem. Right. And part of the problem is actually coming from these clusters. Uh, part of the uh, evidence which convinced the community uh, was coming from these clusters of galaxies, where really there you have three independent pieces of evidence, or three or four, uh, depending on different you, classes uh, of observations. Of observations, areas. which always point to the same amount of dark matter. Right. It's so very convincing now. It's, it's very, very convincing. So, right. and what I have observed now over the last five years uh, is a growing portion of the community being now convinced that this dark matter is not only there, that's what's uh, accepted the uh, early 90s maybe, but that it is made of something different from ordinary matter. People right. are now taking seriously our estimate of the uh, amount of uh, ordinary matter or protons and neutrons from these uh, light uh, elements, these primordial ele uh, abundances of light elements. And people are taking very seriously all this measurement of abundances of uh, dark matter, and they don't match. Right. There is very a very interesting question. Uh, uh, and they don't match. So, what could it be? Um, well, uh, yes, I remember when we thought about this, and the dark matter was first taken seriously by the particle physics community. The first, the obvious candidate that we all imagined would be it would be that neutrinos in the universe uh, have a mass yeah. because neutrinos are expected, we're certain neutrinos exist in the universe and that they're almost as abundant as the photons making up the microwave background radiation. Uh, within a factor of four, they have the same abundance. Probably that we cannot make galaxies with them. Yeah, it was, uh, so they were the first natural candidate. I, uh, I actually remember quite well. Uh, that's the first time I met you. You don't remember that. It was in 82 at CERN. I was still a particle physicist, and you presented a model of neutrinos, a formation of galaxies with neutrinos, and saying, that cannot work. No way. <laughs> so. Okay, that's right. We had started to do numerical experiments. I, I recall what motivated me to get into this field was the uh, the work I had previously done on large-scale structure redshift surveys, in which we had seen a beautiful filamentary structure in the sky because we, for the first time, mapped out large-scale structure. And the primitive simulations that existed up to that point were such a terrible match 
to the data, mm -hmm. I, I had the thought that the data is so far ahead of the theory, why don't I just switch gears and mm -hmm. work on the theory? And then when I moved to Berkeley and we started working on these dark matter models, and myself, Simon White, and Carlos Frank, working with George Estafiu, the first natural model to explore is neutrinos with mass. And very well-regarded physicists such as uh, Zeldovich had uh, worked out in considerable detail what should happen in that case. And because neutrinos are very, although they have mass, they're still relatively light, and they move at high speed early in the universe, have nothing holding them together, all galaxy-sized fluctuations in the initial conditions of the universe would be erased, smoothed out by a process we call free streaming. So, so that was easy to simulate on our So you cannot computers. form smaller structures. You, are, you can only form large uh, structures, the famous pancakes, and, and right. then they have to, they have, uh, to uh, fragment later on. And that's not the way we think that the no, universe is working. we're certain that doesn't work. That so model was killed in the early 80s. But then, yeah. of course, the next model that made sense was uh, where you entered the picture. And I remember it well when we, uh, when the modelers suggested, I think starting with Jim Peebles, that a very natural candidate would be some sort of cold dark matter, mm -hmm. a particle that does not move at high speeds in the early universe, will not erase structure formation in the early universe, and for which, just amazingly, one can calculate in considerable detail the expected initial fluctuation spectra, the, mm -hmm. per, the initial conditions that would give rise to structure in the universe. And in the mid-80s, we thought this model had to be it. This, yeah. We thought we understood everything. And but, uh, of course, we didn't know what the dark matter was. We said there's a critical mass density of some dark matter component that nobody's ever discovered. And uh, good luck, if you discover it, uh, you'll win a prize. And so uh, the race was on to try to discover the nature of this dark matter. So th there were, there were uh, of course, the partic particle physicists and uh, I, among others, were quite interested, interested in, in that uh, idea. Because it's very natural to say that in this hot early universe, you have, you have produced a lot of particles. And maybe some of them managed to stay around. So the, there are too many models to speak uh, about uh, all of them uh, in detail. But uh, uh, there is one which actually has been very present in the community and I've been working on for the last 15 years, I'm afraid, uh, which is uh, very uh, uh, convincing. It turns out is that if you do assume that these particles were produced in the early universe uh, in thermal equilibrium with the rest of the universe at that time, and if these uh, uh, dropped particles dropped out of equilibrium when they were non-relativistic, when they were cold, right. uh, you can relate their density today with their interaction rate. And this, you take a density of the order of, of a third of the critical density, you get a certain interaction rate, which is very interesting because it's really what, uh, at the scale of what particle physicists call weak interactions, as if the physics of the W and the Z intermediate vector boson had something to do with dark matter. 
So cosmology what is pointing to a very interesting uh, scale for particle physicists, and the particle physicists, uh, uh, vice versa, have a problem with their standard models. Uh, the standard model is very successful. Right. Uh, explains a lot of things, but first a, a huge number of parameters, and uh, even worse, is unstable. That is, if you were if you are trying to compute anything, you get infinities, and you have to subtract infinities, and and uh, to get some finite results. So you are in order to understand why W and Z are where they are in mass and in, in interaction strength you have to put something else at that scale. And typically, what uh, people are speaking of is supersymmetry. Right. Uh, so you pair each particle by another particle with uh, a half-spin difference. This is very technical. But OK, so you have bosons, and you, put, you uh, pair them with fermions, and you can get rid of infinities. You can actually also go a long way that way in quantizing gravity, which is, uh, a, a, has been a, a big problem, how to make a quantum theory of gravity. You can't, we do not go all the way, but, but right. it, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's an amazing uh, step. And uh, whereas the lay public would say, wait a minute, this seems like an incredible in-economy mm -hmm. because we're now inventing a, an unseen particle for every particle, every other particle we've ever seen or imagined we're going to see. We've now got an unseen partner, the supersymmetric partner. And I think fairly the physicist's response would be, well, the particle count is not the important issue. It's what matters is the, is the economy, not of particles, but the economy of explanatory principles or symmetry principles that underlie the nature of the fundamental universe. So in that sense, these supersymmetric theories are very beautiful, although they may look a bit weird. A bit weird. In any case, in terms of, uh, if, the, if such thing like supersymmetry exists, uh, it naturally predicts the existence of particles. That could be the dark matter. Which could be the dark matter. Right. So particle physicists is, uh, uh, are predicting something for cosmology. So you have this kind of coincidence between these two fields. Uh, which uh, was particularly attractive. The problem 15 years ago is that we did not have the technology at all. Right. So uh, again, what we had to do is start from scratch and try to develop the technology. And uh, we are now just entering into the region where our experiments are sensitive enough to begin to probe this idea of supersymmetry. Uh, one group even claims uh, to have seen it. I claims to have seen right. it. My own group uh, uh, claims that we are more sensitive than we have not seen it. Okay, difficult questions, uh, uh, technical, but basically we have a more direct method. Uh, the other group tries to look at the yearly modulation, which is very difficult to see because it's a small effect. But anyway, that, let's not get into. Uh, these uh, uh, technical details. The 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 um, the main message is that for weakly interactive massive particles, these famous WIMPs, uh, they are uh, uh, we are just entering the zone of sensitivity where we could really see something. And, and I think in the next, <coughs> excuse me, in the next experimental round, 
you're likely to probe so deeply into this parameter space, this phase space, that you will likely uh, see something or if the there, chance if it's if there, there is, if it is there. Of course, we can't predict <laughs> we if can it's predict. there. And, uh, and yet, finally, I think before we break, there's one more thing we should probably discuss, and that is that uh, that has been so mystifying to the entire cosmological community in the last year, and that is the fact that although the evidence for the dark matter is really solid and has never been better, we now have extremely strong evidence that there's something else in the universe as well. That, yeah, so that uh, not only do we need a dark matter component to the universe, but we appear to need another component to make uh, the, the, the difference. So the total matter in the universe is sufficient to make it flat. Yeah, flat means omega equal 1. This density is equal to the critical density. Right. Density in unit of the critical density is, is 1. The components that we have so far is actually, uh, point, let's say, point f 4, 4, or point 0.3 for the um, dark matter. Dark matter. Uh, 0.05 for the protons and neutrons. Okay, So we are missing something. 60, 70% of the matter is yeah. still missing. And, and, and this is probably the most mysterious of all. So already for some time, uh, maybe 10 years, we, you have noticed, actually, that uh, there was nothing like uh, a, 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 you could not have uh, a critical density of dark matter. And we were assuming that there were some kind of diffuse components, but we had no idea what, what, what uh, it was. Recently, two groups uh, working totally independently but getting basically the same results, have been trying to map the geometry of the universe by looking at supernovae at large distances and high redshifts. Uh, supernovae of one particular type, what we call type 1a, which are probably due to the explosion of a, uh, of a uh, white dwarf, uh, um, creating from a neighboring star. So these supernovae, um, we believe, are very close to have all the same luminosity. Right. And uh, so you have what we call a standard candle, something which has the given luminosity that we can look at as a function of the distance. And uh, we would have expected it to uh, get fainter in a certain way uh, if the universe was flat. As that's, it that's right. But these are little, these are, their brightness is sufficiently faint. Uh, they're a little fainter than expected. And uh, to explain it in terms of relativity in Einstein's theory, it requires the universe to actually not decelerate as ordinary material would as it expands apart, but actually accelerate. And that leads to a dark component of the universe. You can't even call it matter because for some strange reason it appears to have negative pressure. And uh, grasping how to find further ways to investigate such a bizarre component of the universe mm. is something that will occupy us for the coming decade. Particle physicists call this kind of component the energy of the vacuum. It's due to, presumably, to uh, uh, all these uh, virtual particles that exist in quantum theory and which gives uh, energy to the vacuum. 
The only problem the particle physicists have if they make uh, direct calculations, uh, estimates are hundreds uh, of orders of magnitudes bigger than what you observe. Right. We should not exist. That's okay. right. So, uh, uh, so the, we have been assuming without good reasons that it was zero. The thing which is very strange is it is not zero if you believe the supernovae results. It is 0.7 of the critical density. And this means that this thing has just recently appeared. Right. It was totally negligible in Not the early universe. Ago. That's right. And now it's important. It's important. And just why now? Why, uh, why are we living in this uh, very special time? I, the universe has, as we study it more, the universe becomes more and more mysterious. In fact, you might even say Baroque. Why is it so complicated with uh, ordinary matter, dark matter, and this funny, strange component now uh, in evidence? Uh, it makes very little sense. But I think the only uh, way to think about it might is historically. For example, when Kepler, 300 years ago, discovered that the orbit of Mars was not a circle, as he had been told by the ancient Greeks and all the tradition of Greek learning in which a circle was perfection and the heavenly bodies must be perfection, so they should orbit on circles. Instead, Kepler's own uh, studies had demonstrated very convincingly that the orbit of, of Mars was an ellipse. An ellipse is a more complicated structure. It seems kind of ugly compared mm -hmm. to a circle. But not that many years later, the brilliant Newton explained how in the law of universal gravitation, elliptical orbits for the planetary bodies was completely natural. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we need another Newton to get us out of our present conundrum of yeah, complicated I, parameters in cosmology. Uh, yes. Uh, oh, actually, I'm disturbed by these coincidences. Why we have a density in this dark energy of the same order of magnitude as density of dark matter? Why the density of dark matter is only a few times bigger than the density? of the, uh, of the uh, protons and neutrons. Uh, we did not speak about it, but we begin to have evidence uh, that neutrino has, has some uh, mass. Ma some right. mass. But it's small. Uh, small, but in the cosmological uh, context, this would mean that they are basically as much densi mass density in neutrinos in the universe than in stars. Right. So it's not totally negligible. And it's, it's kind of. Uh, so this kind of coincidences uh, have me uh, really uh, fear that we don't really understand gravity. I, I wonder if we're missing something fundamental as well. And many people are really concerned now that although we've made tremendous strides in our understanding of cosmology, not all the pieces fit together yet. Uh, you know, at, uh, the last time we discussed uh, these, these matters uh, together like this, uh, we didn't know a fraction of the things that we've learned in the last few years. So perhaps we should break now. And when we reconvene a few years from now, we'll have made further progress. And uh, maybe some of these profound mysteries will have an explanation. Yes, no, I think that's, uh, I'm looking forward to that. OK, well, it's good to chat with you, Bernard. And we'll see you next time. OK, thanks. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the free to choose media podcast.